Hi everyone, welcome to another episode and another month of a podcast directed by. So this month, as I mentioned at the end of last month, we're doing something a little bit different. So we're not just going to stick with one director this month. That's right, everything you know about this podcast is a lie. Uh, we are changing things up. So on this episode, um, we are basically what we're doing uh, without Mike, because fuck that guy. Uh, we are going to take a look at first-time directors who were actors beforehand. So actors who were like, you know what? Director guy, I can do that. Get out of that chair. I'm going to take over. And to do that, I'm bringing in the person whose kind of idea this was. Um, and this is uh, Andrew from from The Curb. Uh, so, Andrew, welcome welcome to a podcast directed by our first non-Mike, non-Dave host. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me. I uh, was going to attempt a Kentucky accent. but no, no, um, Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah, I look, I think I would offend everybody if I did that. Um, but yeah, no, thank you very much for having me on. When you asked me to do this, I, I felt quite uh, touched because, yeah, I had this idea a while ago of exploring films that were directed by actors and just seeing what the perspective was that their acting experience brought to the directing experience and having watched these films and seeing, you know, both the actors work and the director's work i'm i'm fascinated by the creative choices that they make and i find it a really really interesting thing that uh you know a lot of directors uh or actors turned directors want to have a creative voice that is uniquely their own and mm -hmm. i'm fascinated by what they feel is important to tell um so yeah thank you yeah so when you when you kind of first had this idea because this is you know little Inside Baseball, me and Mike had talked about this, and this was an idea a while ago you had for a podcast and then decided, like, that's fucking too much trouble, uh, which is a smart <laughs> I'm decision. I'm lazy. I'm it's lazy. A, I mean, honestly, it's a very, very smart decision. Um, so I find myself wondering, like, were there certain movies that, like, popped in here? Like, if someone says, like, actors turn directors, are there certain movies that immediately jumped to your mind that, that made you interested in this as a whole? Um, yeah, like, the main one that jumps to my mind is, like, Ben Affleck and Gone Baby Gone. Mm. And the reasoning behind that is I like Ben Affleck as an actor. I think he's a good actor. But the decade leading up to Gone Baby Gone was not his best work. <laughs> and True. then all of a sudden, this guy who nobody expects to make a great film makes a great film. Mm -hmm. And it got me thinking about all of the actors turned into directors and stuff like that. And, and then – also, on top of that, I'm doing a lot of reading about uh, Jennifer Kent with The Babadook. Mm -hmm. And now she was an actress uh, in a TV series in Australia called Murder Call, which is a terrible show. It's on YouTube if you want to submit <laughs> yourself to that. She's fine in it um, as kind of like the comedic side relief. You wouldn't expect Jennifer Kent to be comedic relief, but she is. Um, and then she stepped away from that going, I don't think that acting is for me, and then went and did directing. So those two people were very much on my mind. It's like I'm fascinated by that because then you get you do get some people who start off as actors and go, shit, this directing thing's pretty good. I've got a good <laughs> talent with doing that. And then they just stay doing that. Um, and vice versa as well. You get some directors who, you know, uh, are like that. Um, or like, um, Neil, what's his face? The guy who did like The Kingdom and, um, uh, Hancock and stuff like that. He mm. used to be an actor and now he's doing, um, directing as well. So I find that really fascinating in itself. And then you yeah. have some actors, like you, you mentioned some actors like get behind, get in the director's chair and then never go back. Um, but then there's some actors well, like Drew who, Barrymore, yeah, yeah. But then there's some actors the opposite, like they try it out and they're like, "Wow, that hmm, that did not turn out well. I'm not, I'm not making <laughs> that mistake again. This is much harder than I expected it to be." And I think we're gonna have a little bit of both of those this month. Um, and then you know, you came up with the idea for this month essentially, and then you know, like an asshole, you were like, "Yeah, you pick the movies, whatever." I don't. I was like, <laughs> "God damn it!" Uh, so. So I had to do some research and, you know, because I just can't stop making things difficult for myself, I'm like, well, each episode has to have a theme. Uh, I can't just pick two random movies. God <laughs> fucking forbid. Um, so uh, we're going to start off this month, which is kind of the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid uh, month. Uh, we're picking movies from uh, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Um, so they both at one point, of course, were 
tremendously successful actors who eventually like went into the director's chair. And that's not something, I mean, I knew about ordinary people, uh, but I had no idea Paul Newman had other, ever, ever directed uh, before. Yeah, same. So, I had no idea. And I didn't know that the film that you chose until literally I had a look just before um, it, it was nominated lost, for best picture. Yeah. And best director. <laughs> like, it's just like, Oh, well, I guess maybe he was pretty good at this, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that's the movie we're going to start with. Um, the movie is called Rachel, Rachel. Um, it is, it's on Prime Video if you want to rent it. You can rent it at like a dollar ninety nine, so it's not horribly expensive or anything. Um so did you know anything about this movie going into it? No. I knew nothing. I didn't read anything about it mm-hmm. other than I pushed play. Um I thought this title is a bit weird. I thought it was a <laughs> bit kind of like I am curious yellow, I'm curious blue kind of stuff. I was like, all right. Paul Newman's maybe mate. That's that's the the image that I had in my mind. It's not like that at all. Um, I love this film. <laughs> like I I watched it and I was just in awe of how brilliant it was and mm-hmm. how um amazingly accomplished it is as a directorial. Like his directorial voice is there, and what he is trying to say is right there in the film and the editing and the styling of it. And the, mm. the performance that he gets from Joanne Woodward is just, wow. I, I was really, really impressed with this particular film. Um, and again, yeah, I didn't know anything about it going into it at all, other than it was about a woman named Rachel. She's yeah. called Rachel once, not Rachel, <laughs> Rachel. <laughs> yes. Uh, it's interesting because I also didn't know anything about this going in and I kind of looked up, him as a director, he only made five films uh, in his career, uh, going from 1968 to 1987 in The Glass Menagerie. Um, Glass Menagerie is is looked at relatively highly, um, but the rest of these are kind of complete unknowns besides Rachel Rachel. Um, I enjoyed this movie, but I, I agree with you that his directorial voice is here, but I'm not sure that I like it. <laughs> really? I, I feel Why like is it, that? I'm curious. Um, it feels very over-directed. Um, I feel like he tries a lot of things that don't really work visually. Um, but I will say that the performance he gets out of Woodward is just staggering. Like yeah. she is this – is, this is one of the best performances I've seen ever. Like I, I think yeah. she's it's absolutely so phenomenal good. here. Yeah. Um, but it's – I think it's a hard movie to – it will be a hard movie to access for people. I don't think it's – it's not it, – it, it doesn't give you an easy in. It doesn't give you a lot of easy answers, which I definitely like about it. Um, and I think something we will see um, this month, just because I've watched like a couple of the movies this month already. And I think one of the things you're going to see from actors turned directors are you're going to see quote-unquote actors movies. Yeah. Right. Where you get to have these phenomenal performances and they feel almost more like stage plays than they do like movies in a lot of ways in the, in the ways that they're built. Um, and I think this is the start of that. And that's not a bad thing in its nature. I just think it's interesting to see what kind of movies are chosen first by actors. And it makes me wonder, do you think actors, like when they're going to become directors, start looking at scripts and they're like, yeah, that would be really fun. That would be a really fun role for an actor rather than like taking the film as a whole and being like, this is going to be a great movie. Yeah. I mean, they, they certainly, especially with a film like Rachel, Rachel and ordinary people as well. There is a, there is an inherent drama in these characters. And, mm-hmm. and that I think is certainly. You know, it's capital A acting where you yes. can emote and you can you can show you the the variety of skills that you have, and that in itself is very enticing for actors because it's a it's a language that they can communicate to other actors. They can say, "All right, do this because of this," or you know, "Remember this because of that," and all this kind of stuff. Whereas directors, from what I've understood from listening to directors talk and stuff, they don't usually think like that they often maybe think of their actors as tools and so therefore the emotions are there but it's the actor's job to come up with those emotions it's not the director's Mm. job to be like i need you to feel this or to present this you know directors sometimes will be you know 
okay, I need you to do that, but I also need you to do this over this and this kind of thing. Like I need you to do it this way mm. and not feel this way. So you need to present something. I'm not sure I'm explaining myself very well, but that's what I feel like actor turned directors do. They, they want to be able to create the best ground for actors to work. And mm-hmm. which makes they sense, want right? to, yeah, I mean, yeah. that's their experience as well. And they, they, they want to be able to, I guess, in a, in a dreamland way, they want to be able to present a workplace that they would love to work in. And mm-hmm. that's why, I guess, in a lot of ways, you get to see, uh, you know, actors turn directors who also act in their own films. And I'm thinking of something like, you know, the triple threat, I guess, in a lot of ways, is Bradley Cooper with A Star Is Born, who sure. wrote the fucking thing acted in it and directed in it and it's a killer performance and his killer writing and his great direction as well. But he, he's like, you know, he created a place for himself to play in that he loved and he right. wanted. And that's what I think that most actors turn directors want this, a playground to work with. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess we should, cause not a lot of people have seen this movie. I don't know how many of our listeners will actually like watch the movie before listening to this, but it's essentially, I guess the story of this, school teacher uh in connecticut who has a sexual awakening and gains her independence but it happens in her in her mid-30s um so it's it's a really interesting there's a lot of interesting things about this movie one of them is that i was not expecting like maybe a queer side character in this Mm. movie like that shocked me for 1960 fucking eight i was just like an actual like we don't have like in a lot of big movies now we don't have like same-sex kisses on screen uh, but we have that here. I, they don't really explain like, okay, is this woman caught up in the moment with Rachel? Is she lesbian? Is she bisexual? Like what is actually going on here? And I kind of liked that the movie never answers that question. Uh, because you could see Rachel as being the type of person who would withdraw from that relationship after that happened. Cause she's like, she has not really had an awakening in her life. She's not mm. like, up until the events of this movie, she's not really a sexual being at all, uh, which is why a lot of her actions, which in a quote-unquote normal person might seem strange, actually make sense because there's so much she hasn't experienced. Yeah, and I find it interesting that you, you're focusing on the sexual awakening uh, in this story more than the affection the attention mm. relationship awakening sure. that yeah. she has because to me she yes the sexual awakening is there but this is a person who is so heavily introverted that it's and and a forced introversion in a way that her life is just so boxed up mm-hmm. and all she craves is attention and affection and just somebody to pay attention and care for her and love her and you know touch her and hold her and talk to her and respect her and care for her and and all of that is their base human desires and wants and 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 interests and again Joanne Woodward just presents this so perfectly and so intimately that you just feel like she's been on the same journey as well and whether she has or not who knows but it's just you feel like this is a person who's lived that whole entire life and who's just waited for this moment to be a person, like to be normal, to be normal. That's all she wants. And, you know, coming back to her, her queer friend, it's like the moment that I love about this film is how Rachel talks to her later on and basically says, I'm really sorry. I couldn't be that person for you. Right. And, you know, again, this film was made in 1968. For for a character to just be like aware of somebody else's sexuality and not deal with it and like you're fucking weird, man. Right. You know, kind of way. It's just it's jaw dropping. It really mm-hmm. is. And in many ways, to me, that presents a character who thinks a lot. And it's hard mm-hmm. to present a character who thinks a lot and to show that thinking occurring. And here Rachel is somebody who so obviously overthinks everything and has mm-hmm. considered every single moment of her life minutely and, and 
the way that that Newman presents that, and I love this so much, the way that he presents that is in these short little glimpses of flashbacks and also the alternate reality moments that are occurring. You know, a beautiful moment is when a young kid is um, getting taken away to the principal's office because of uh, being, you know, truancy and stuff like that. And all Rachel wants to do is just rush this kid out of the classroom and look after him. And Mm -hmm. in a fantasy moment, we see that occur. And then we flash back to the, the present and see, you know, that unfortunately is not the reality that could happen. Right. But Newman knows that this is a great way of being able to present what's going on in her mind and to show that she thinks a lot. And I think that's just a, a magnificent thing to occur. Hmm. That's why I love this film so much. I was just impressed by it completely. Yeah. Like I could definitely see that perspective as far as Newman's direction, but I, hmm. there are, <laughs> there no, there are moments of it that I like, but I do feel like it's overdone. Uh, I think Woodward's performance is good enough that a lot of those tricks aren't even necessary. I think just looking at her face, you can see what type of person she is. And that is an impressive thing for an actor. Uh, to just like, well, I'm just going to hold the camera here on your face and just let it happen. And yeah. I think you get everything you need. And I think one of the most interesting things about the movie to me is when this lead male character is introduced. He makes this very crude pass at her. Like, well, basically, like, I was horny, so I thought you might have been, so let's fuck. Like, that's essentially what that scene is. Uh And I think, at least for me, you expect that character to just... For me, I expected that character to just disappear, and this was just going to be a moment showing that she is not experienced and she would never do something like that. I did not expect that to blossom into something. And I think that speaks to what you're talking about, about the affection that she has been denied Mm. and the attention she's been denied her whole life because all she has is her fucking crazy ass mom uh, who needs her to do absolutely everything for her uh, and cannot be alone. And she's been taught essentially her whole life that she has to take care of people and yeah. that she is not important. Um, so then it makes sense that, like, the fact that she has a sexual relationship with this man, that she, even though he's clearly terrible, like, we all know that, and I think deep down she knows that when she first meets him, it still makes sense that she kind of falls for him, or at least falls for the situation uh, when, yeah. when she thinks she, she's pregnant. And you're like, oh, I, even though I'm like, oh, God, you... Poor, you poor, sweet summer child. Like, you know nothing. Uh, you still are like, no, but I get it. I get why that she goes that direction. Yeah. And what I like is that I think that she falls for the idea of him because he's, mm-hmm. he lost a twin and she understands that grief, that loss and understands that kind of, uh, the pain that he might be living with. But it's so obvious that he, I mean, the picture in his wallet is, I assume that's of his brother. Mm-hmm. That That's how I read it at least. And so, you know, he kind of deals with it in a way that is kind of like, eh, I'm well and truly over it, but I can use this as a way of getting out of relationships. I can still have a fling with somebody and then be like, no, I see I got a son. <laughs> you know, right. Can't do it. Thing. Sorry. Yeah. yeah sorry. <laughs> um, but you know, she she has built up this image of this man in her mind. And again, it's this man that she's been, not him specifically, but it's this man that she's been obsessing over for her whole life, basically, wanting somebody to come and be that husband, to be the man who that she can love and, you know, have dinner parties with and go out and mm-hmm. dance and all that kind of stuff and just have a partner. And I think what I find... The most depressing about this is come back to her mother is that the ending of the film presents the the fact that she is not never going to be escaping this life. Oh, I disagree. You know, she manages. I totally disagree with that. I t- you read I, it? Yeah. I, I found this film, this film totally helpful, uh, hopeful rather. Um, no, because... see, not at all. Not no, at all. See, because okay, they... so I'll present my case then, okay, and then ahead. you can tell me that. Right, because she is presented with the chance of her mum staying there in the home that they lived in. Uh And to me, I think that she will, like, there was a point where Rachel could have said to her mum, 
Mum, I'm going to the city to go and work. Your life is here. You have to stay here with your friends and your life here. But her mum is coming with her. And it's so obvious that the future that is going to happen is that her mum is going to be away from all her friends, the life that she's known for her whole entire life. And so Rachel is once again going to be the only person that she can rely on. And she's it, it's just the cycle continues. She's going to be the same person. And I didn't, I didn't see it as hopeful. There is a micro step of growth in some ways, but she's still weighted down by this pain. You are so cynical and so wrong. <laughs> um, so that, I, I can't believe you called that a micro step. Like that moment where she puts her foot down to her mother is massive. It is huge. And yes, her mother is going with her and her mother is still awake, but Rachel is changed. Never again is she going to be the person who's going to be like, well, I'm going to let you walk all over me. She is going to like, I, I fully believe that when they move, like she knows that she is a different person. Now she has hope. She has actual choices and she can tell her mother like, no, I'm not going to do that. We're living together, but I'm not going to do that. So I viewed it as like, we are moving forward. Like, and I kind of love that. It's not one of those moments where it's like, fuck you, mom. I'm out of here. I'm going to leave you to die. Like, it's just like, no, we're going to move on with our lives, but I am not the same Rachel that yeah. you raised. I'm not the spinster. You know, I've had experience with affection, with attention, with sex, and I'm going to have it again. And there may be a time where I leave you for now. You can stay with me, but that's it. So I took it as very, very hopeful. And okay. I think, and I think Woodward's performance in that scene where she does kind of give in to her mom and be like, fine, we'll, you know, I'll stay with you. We'll be together. But I don't view her as being the same person. I think it's much bigger than a micro step of growth. Like, I think over the hour and a half of this movie, like, not only is it growth, like, she's almost unrecognizable from the Rachel we are introduced to in the beginning, let alone the Rachel that we see in flashback. Sure. I can I can appreciate that. Have some hope, I, Andrew. Come on. I have. I, I, <laughs> I just I just know you Aussies what, so negative. Jesus. <laughs> I just know what like I don't know. Over the past few years, when I've watched these watch films that have ended on a moment of hope, I'm like, all right, okay, we've ended on this moment of hope, but the that moment of hope is for us. It's for the audience. So what happens over the next five minutes, ten minutes, a year in that character's life? What what happens after that? And if you follow the logical steps, then I'm like, this is really sad from my perspective at least. I found I found it sad that she still weighted down. Yes, there is a growth there, but it just it but isn't it's not it, a isn't monumental it possible, Isn't it possible that okay, like in life there are like it sounds dramatic, but in life there are decision points there are change points there are points that our lives pivot upon and for me that's what this moment was yeah you know so you could say like yes all previous behavior um and all the information we have before this moment tells us like oh well her mom is pretty much a bitch and she's gonna drag her down and rachel's a shy shy woman and she's just gonna put up with this but again like for me at least like this pivot point is like it's huge yeah. And I, and I like, if I think about, okay, what do I think is going to happen in the next 10 minutes, in the next 10 hours, in the next 10 years? To me, it's not the same stuff. It's not what we've seen before. Cause otherwise, like, kind of like, what's the point of the story? If she's just yeah, going to yeah, go I back and that. do this, yeah. you know? Yeah. I'm not yeah. trying to like, you're wrong, but like, that's, no, that's no, the but, way but, I looked but, at it. But that's, I think that's the strength of a film like this, though, is that we both can walk away from it with perspectives that, I think are both right. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that they're both logical and as correct. As long as you say way, I'm right, that's really. <laughs> but but that's it. Like you, you know, and it, it's a perfect pairing with ordinary people in a lot of ways. That you know, that they are films that end with moments of major life decisions, mm -hmm. and that's hard. That's really really hard. And again, you know, just like with ordinary people, I like thinking about what those characters are going to do. And what I like about these two films in particular is that 
they're not clear cut. You know, they're not cookie cutter films in a lot of ways. They are dealing with complex stories uh-huh. and complex characters and complex human emotions. And that's again, coming back to why actors want to direct and stuff like that. I find that really interesting that, you know, this is in a lot of ways, you know, these two guys, Robert Redford and Paul Newman were, you know, iconic men uh-huh. in a lot of ways in the sixties and seventies. And looking at Paul Newman's filmography at this period of time, like he did Cool Hand Luke in 1967, um, Torn Curtain in 1966, and then Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid in 1969. The guy worked real hard. Uh-huh. Like 60, 66, Torn Curtain, Hombre in 67, Cool Hand Luke 67, Secret War of Harry Frigg 68, Winning 69, and then Butch Cassidy in 69. Did all of that and also directed a film as well. And I guess from, I haven't, I'm not as deep in Paul Newman's acting career as I probably should be, but mm-hmm. I'm curious for you whether, what do you think that he saw in this particular story? Because it's about a woman, it's not about a man. So it's mm-hmm. not, there was, and there's no chance of a character that Paul Newman could be the surrogate for in the particular film. Why do you think that he chose this particular story to tell? That's a really great, great question. Um, because I was surprised, I was surprised at how, how feminist this movie felt. Uh, I mean, even if you made it now, it would feel feminist, let alone in 1968. Um, because he was, I mean, because he was kind of the, the, the epitome of masculinity at this period in Hollywood. Um, but also, if you look at the man's like politics throughout his life, pretty liberal guy, you know, willing to take risks um, when it came to like kind of what he said and what he did in public and the the women that he was with. Because uh, I think him and Joanne Woodward were together at this point mm-hmm. uh, when uh, when he directed this. So what what it told to me is like maybe you know he's like okay, I want to direct um, and I want to direct this woman who I care about and I want to give her something to really sink her teeth into. Um, and I think that's pretty honorable, actually, uh, to take a, you know, originally a book, but a screenplay that is, that has nothing to do with you, that is not a movie that you would have been involved in in any way. This isn't, you know, uh, this isn't Cool Hound Luke. Uh, this isn't no. HUD. You know, this isn't like this. So I like that he took, because a lot of actors will like just be like, well, the movies that I like to make, I'm going to make those, but I'm going to be in the chair instead. And I love the fact that he just took a totally different angle and was just like, no, I want to find something like thought provoking, something slow, no action, almost like there's romance, but not not the type of romance that you would have seen in his movies. So it is kind of a mystery, like why he chose this. And I do feel a little bit bad saying like, well, everything is good except the direction. <laughs> Although I looked up like on Wikipedia, there's a lot of that in the reviews of the time. Uh, I think one of the reviews was like, without Woodward, this movie would completely fall apart because the direction's so bad, which is a little harsh. Uh, I don't, I don't think it's like poorly directed. It's just like it, to me, it's obvious that it's a first time director and there's nothing wrong with that because he is a first time director. So it feels like, let me lean on some tricks, let me lean on some visual stuff, let me lean on the flashbacks uh, to tell the story. When honestly, a lot of that, like, not that it's not good, uh, but like, even if you take out all that stuff, I think Woodward's performance is good enough to carry it and make you care. Definitely, yeah, yeah. I just, I, I do think it's a really good direction, and I'm curious to, to seek out his other stuff as well, because uh, I'm curious to see what his directorial voice is like. Um, I don't know. I just, I just think this one worked quite well. And I, maybe I was kind of surprised because it felt so modern in a lot of ways. And again, it's, you know, from 1968 and this is, you know, this particular film and ordinary people, they're both films that I resonate with a lot. They're, they're human dramas and human Mm -hmm. condition and all that wanky shit. And (laughs) that I like that stuff a lot. Like that's, that's so, it feels so trite to say that, but it's what I look for in movies. So when it happens so expertly and so well crafted like this, I, I can't help but applaud it. And especially 
a character like Rachel getting presented like this, mm-hmm. we rarely see introverts on screen and we rarely yeah. see Even those now. kinds of stories mm-hmm. being told. And especially, you know, nowadays, like I've been reading quite a lot about um, sex, modern sex lives and stuff like that. And there are a lot of millennials and, and younger people who are not only um, refraining from having sex, but there are a lot of people who are at 30, 35 years of age and have opted to not have sex at all. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting that, you know, in this particular film, it's not it's not delivered in a 40-year-old virgin kind of way. Not, I mean, it's not that kind of film, but like 40-year-old virgin was like, ah, I'm 40 years old. I can't believe that I haven't, you know, and it's like, I don't believe that Steve Carell would be that way, but that's no. fine. You know, we're not going into that. But with this, it's like it paints it paint you know they paint such a fascinating character about this woman who has you know outwardly is a beautiful looking woman, but her personality just has not allowed her to oh. and her circumstance as well has not allowed her to be open enough to that particular circum that uh the invitation of romance mm-hmm. and um that's what I liked a lot about it, yeah. yeah. I'm so, glad that you brought up, yeah. Yeah. Because so, I would never have seen this film. I would oh, never have known it I mean, existed. I wouldn't have known it existed until I started, like, research. Like, I just, like, started researching, like, actors who were directors. And this is one of the things that came up. And I was like, I've never even heard of this. I can't believe it got nominated for all these uh, all these Oscars. But, you know, yeah. here we are. Um, so I just, before we go into Ordinary People, I'm just going to close it off with this uh, review that I was uh, offhandedly mentioned. So in Variety, it says... They called it an offbeat film that moves too slowly and added, there's very little dialogue, most of which is very good, but this asset makes a liability out of the predominantly visual nature of the development, which in time seems to become redundant, padded, and tiring. Direction is awkward. Were Woodward not there, film could have been a shambles. (laughs) Which I think is too much variety. Let's reel it in. Uh, I agree with some of that, but I don't agree with the extremity of it. I'll just yep. say that a little harsh. Um, but now, <laughs> now we are going to move uh, to the other half of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Uh, we are going to move to Robert Redford uh, directing his first movie much later on uh, in 1980. Uh, and a movie I think we had both and most people have heard of at this point, Ordinary People, um, starring Donald Sutherland, Mary Tyler Moore, Judd Hirsch, and Timothy Hutton. Um, so essentially it's the, the story of Kind of a middle-class family being destroyed by the accidental death of one of their kids and then the attempted suicide of the other, played by Timothy Hutton. Uh, again, based on a novel and again, a movie that uh, welcomes phenomenal performances. Like, it is very much an actor's movie, uh, for sure. And this is a movie, as far as, like, my own history with it, weirdly, I don't think I've seen this since I was a freshman in high school. Uh, and I'm 40 years old now, so it's been like, you know, 25 years or something since I've seen this. And I saw it in a class. Like, I saw it in a, like, I think the class was called Personal Growth. Uh, and we, we watched this movie and it, like, destroyed me. Um, and it's one of those movies that's interesting that I, I always, of course, loved, but, like, never felt the need to go back to because it was so memorable to me. Like, it was so, it's such an emotional experience to watch this movie that it's not something you forget. <laughs> it's something that stays very fresh. As I was watching it again for this podcast, I was like, yeah, I remember every fucking moment of this. Yeah. And this is, and there are, and it's really hard to watch. You know, there are oh, moments yeah. that are really difficult to get through, but on it, like, if I had to pick, like, best, uh, best acting ensembles in the history of film, it's hard to come up with a better one than this. Everyone so a- in this is, just great like even even rewatching it and you know i've i've seen this film a lot i watched this when i was probably 12 years of age and then i've just i've just come back to it ever since i love this film it's one of my favorite films um i just think that it's beautifully acted and beautifully directed and beautifully written and yeah i mean everybody in this particular film is acting perfectly, even so much to the point that there is a there is a scene where um, the husband and wife 
uh, played by Donald Sutherland and Mary Tyler Moore, um, are arguing at a golf course with their friends standing behind them. And if you watch their friends standing there, you can just feel their friends being like, fuck, what do we do? Oh, shit. You know, ah. And if you've ever watched a couple fight in public, that shit was so real. It was. I was was noticing that, too. I don't think I'd ever noticed it before or thought about it. But it would be very – it's very easy in a movie like this that can be very big at moments to have your supporting characters react too strongly. Uh, yep. but if you've ever seen a couple fight in public, you try not to make contact with, eye contact with them or with anyone else. Like, oh, what do I do with my hands? Uh, I'm gonna look at the ground. Like, this is so awkward. It's so private. It's something I shouldn't be seeing. And that actually, now that I say that out loud, kind of feels like the whole movie, uh, kind of in a nutshell is like, we are seeing something that happens all the time, but no one talks about and no one ever sees. And that, to me, is, like, why it is so impactful, is to, like, get well, it's, it's a view the title. in. It's yeah. the title. Exactly. I mean, you know, like, it, the the title does sound ordinary, but the whole point of it is that it is that ordinary people. It's just regular people who go through terrible things. And mm-hmm. it is a real life, and, and that's just, you know, PTSD and trauma and death and grief and all that kind of stuff. And I think, I think part of the reason why I watched it for the first time um, yeah, I was about 12, 13 years of age when I watched it. And I was at, uh, primary school then, I think. And I watched it right after, um, there was a tragedy at, uh, down when I was uh, on a Christmas break. And one of my friends lost their sister, uh, their brother and their father in a mm. boating tragedy. They both drowned. And, somehow I was going through watching best picture winners at that time and ordinary people just happened to be one of the films. I didn't know that that was part of the plot and it broke me when I watched it because Mm. I was just thinking about that and it made me appreciate and understand the pain and the grief that she would be going through. And, you know, I I hadn't been through a trauma or, or tragedy or anything like that to that level in my life at that point. And so I didn't know what that felt like, but this film at that point kind of said, you know, this is how people grieve and this is how people struggle to process and and address and, uh, you know, deal with their complex emotions and and depression and and grief and all that kind of stuff. These are heavy things to deal with. And Everybody goes through them on a regular, you know, it's a day-to-day occurrence. You know, there are people dying terrible deaths every single day, and yet families are not prepared for this. Yep. And that's what this film is really about, is about a family that is not prepared for this. And you learning about what your loved ones are capable of, and, mm. and oh, it's heady. It's yeah. heavy, but it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, from a directorial perspective, I think sometimes it's easy to get wrapped up in like, oh, the look and the style and the, you know, I got to put my stamp on this. And one of the things we don't talk about a lot when it comes to directors is a big part of their job is getting great performances. Um, and holy crap, um, this movie, there are no bad performances. But more impressive than that, there are so many different types of performances here. Um, mm. and it's so in balance. And I think that's due to the director. I think that's due to Redford, like to manage all of this. Like you have, you have big moments. Um, you have big fights, right? You have the, at the golf course. Uh, and then you have these small modes, particularly with Donald Sutherland, who gets short shrift in this cast. Like everyone and their mom got nominated from this movie, except for Donald Sutherland. And I'm not saying like that he is the best performance in this movie, but like to me, he's, he kind of holds this movie together. Like, I think if you don't have this really understated and in my mind, absolutely pitch perfect performance from him, Mary Tyler Moore can't do what she does. Timothy Hutton can't do what she does. And even Judd Hirsch in the one scene that he has uh, with him, he can't do what he does either. And it is soulful and sorrowful. And honestly, like that's the hardest stuff for me to watch is Sutherland. Like it breaks my heart because he is just trying. He's the one in the family who isn't allowed to break. 
He isn't allowed to have an emotional reaction. He is the one who feels like he has to hold everyone together. And it's, and it's interesting because it's not, it's not a standard, um, strong but silent male role. It's an emotional silent male role. And you don't, mm. you almost never see that. And he is so soft with everyone in this movie. There's maybe one movie where he kind of snaps at somebody. And it's, I think it's very telling that he snaps at his son for being hard on himself. Yeah. That's the only time he raises his voice, really. Or when he's telling, he's talking to his wife and saying, like, just listen to me. Listen to what, what I'm saying, what I'm going through. I'm hurting. Those are the only times he reacts in any kind of aggressive manner. And to see a man in late seventies, early eighties be that soft is like fucking revolutionary. Like, yeah. it's just like watching this, like, how did he not get nominated for an Oscar? I mean, Judd he's Hirsch never did. been nominated for an Oscar either. Like, that's crazy. That's crazy. It's insane. Look at his career and he's like, everything that he's done, nothing. Nothing at all. It's he, insane. He's definitely and getting one of those lifetime achievement awards. At some he's point. he's like, already gotten one. He's got okay, a lifetime go. achievement. He there got it. Go. He got it a couple of years ago. But and <laughs> at that point, I was like, he's definitely never getting. Yeah, right. One now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, if he'd stop doing fucking Hunger Games movies, maybe he would. You know. Yeah. <laughs> but I just I think what I love about this film, like his performance in particular, is just just stunning. And there are so many different micro moments that just. Mm-hmm show how hard he is working to recognize the pain that his son is going through, but also to try and keep his family together. And he doesn't, for the majority of the film, he doesn't consciously know that he's trying to keep the family together. Correct. But that's what he's doing. That's what his actions are. And there's a moment early on where he's sitting at the the, the uh, dining table and his son is just like, looks like shit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he's tried to address him the night before, basically saying, you know, burning the midnight oil, all right, maybe you should get some sleep, all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Just looking out for him and trying to be the, the supportive father and stuff like that. And then in the morning, you know, his son's like, I got to go. My friends are there to pick me up and all this kind of stuff. And, and he's the son's gone out the door and Sutherland's character just calls out to him for like one more thing to be like, you know, Oh, maybe this as well. Just like a, a small moment of hope to throw at his son to be like, I just hope this sticks and your day is going to be a little bit brighter. Right. And again, as you're saying, like that care and that tenderness that he has here is just, it's phenomenal. Like mm-hmm. you don't see that. You don't see that in very many films at all. It doesn't matter if it was from the eighties or the nineties or seventies right. or whatever, even now in the fucking 2020s, like, we're still not seeing male fi- fi- figures like this. I think probably the closest right. one I can think of is Michael Stuhlberg in um, Call Me By Your Name. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. you know, he's such a observant, understanding figure in that film. And just like Sutherland's character, he's here. And mm-hmm. <sighs> it breaks my heart. But I also, I, I, I need to applaud um, Timothy Hutton as well because – I remember watching it and just being like, who is this guy? You know, well, it was, it was I had no first idea. Movie. Was. It was the first yeah. movie he ever did. He had done TV yeah. work, but this was his film debut, which is just phenomenal. Like, cause it's, I mean, I think you're going to get to it, but like, I think you posted something on Twitter. Like this may be like the best performance of the 1980s. Like he just yep. comes in to his first movie ever and just knocks it out of the park. Yep. And, and the scenes that he has with Judd Hirsch is like, Oh, those scenes are so brilliant and so powerful because, you know, not all therapists are like that, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's just that relationship of how important having a good therapist can be and somebody to listen yep. to your pain. Not only that, but like to not just listen to what you're going through and the struggles that you're going through, but to actually push back against you when yep. it's necessary. And there's a brilliant moment where he, you know, Hutton's Conrad is like, he wants to continue on talking and he's like, you know, what, what do I do? What do I do? And, and Hirsch's therapist is just like, not time's up, time's up. We'll talk about it next time. Mm-hmm. Knowing full well that he's pushing it onto him to think about mm-hmm. his actions, what he said and what he's done. Right. And that's just, it's caring, it's empathy. And it's, it's, 
<sighs> as Fresh. someone as someone who has done that job, who has been a therapist, yeah. this might this still might be the best representation of good therapy I've ever seen on film. Uh it's and if you told someone in 1980, like, you know, Judd Hirsch, that guy from Taxi, he's going to be a therapist in a movie. You're like, oh, fuck. This is going to be yeah. terrible. But it's so, I mean, I think you brought up the word empathy, which is, it's, the, it's one of the most empathetic performances I've ever seen. And that pushback that you also talked about is something that people don't talk about in therapy uh, when they talk about it on film. It's It's either... Oh, I'm just going to listen to everything you say and I'm very kind or I'm like really aggressive and I'm going to tell you what to do. And this is neither of those things. It's this like perfect balance. And mm. it's not a situation where it's like everything he says is perfect and everything he says is going to get the right reaction. I like the fact that he goes with it in those moments where if he says something and your patient says, fuck you. No, fuck you. I'm not doing this. Then you have to go with that. You're like, okay, let's talk about that. And he does, and he just kind of rolls with it. And he's like, he's not a perfect therapist, but he's really, really good at his job. And I love yeah. how, you know, how it's not like a standard, like, clinical office. It's just like, it's kind of messy, and it's kind of, and it shows his personality. And that's, in my experience, the best therapists have been like that, where they're comfortable in their own surroundings, and it's not so sterile. Um, which is everything that Timothy Hutton's character has already experienced, because he's been in the hospital. So it's so yeah. nice for him to experience something different. And I guess the one person we haven't talked about is Mary Tyler Moore, um, who probably got the most publicity uh, when this movie came out because you can't get any farther away from Mary Tyler Moore, the symbol, than this character that we're seeing here. And it is – I don't know what Robert Redford had seen to go like, yeah, that's who I want in this role. But God bless him, because this is this is one of the biggest switches in in acting history that you will ever see. And yeah. of course, it's tragic given what Mary Tyler Moore experienced around the time this movie came out. Her own son died of an accidental. Oh wow! Shot I didn't wound. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He had a, he was handling a gun and accidentally shot himself, and he died. This is in 1980, right when this movie came out. So in the midst of like maybe the greatest success of her professional life, she's dealing with the most horrible loss of her personal life, which really, it, it's sick, but it, like, fits into the movie that it became. You yeah. know? Like, we just, we don't see the insides of people very often. We just see what they project, and that's especially true of celebrity culture, even in 1980, much worse now. Um, but for her to experience something like that after diving into a role like this like i can't even imagine but her performance oh my god like to to be able to be at once that cold and that in pain and not have an audience hate you uh because it's a very like if it's if this character is played poorly she is a super villain yeah in this movie yeah but you do still care about her because you do there is that one moment with her and Donald Sutherland in the garage, which I think carries that whole dynamic. I think if you take that scene out, she's a complete villain and it's hard yeah. to connect to her. But just like you understand why she is pushing everyone away. You understand why she doesn't want to deal with this. And that moment on the golf course where she like, she doesn't want to think about her own son. And I guarantee you every parent who has a son, a son or a daughter who's in pain has that moment where it's just too much and I just can't stand it and I need to yeah. get away from it. And even if the kid's not in pain, just like I need to get away. I need to just be with my husband or be by myself and the world frowns upon that and the world is not letting me. And that hurts. Like her before, like God, this movie is just like, if you want to like nitpick about like directorial choices or about setting or about, you know, the reuse of music, which I think really works personally, fine. But, like, I will not hear any negatives about the performances in this movie. Yeah, uh, the performances are brilliant. And, look, I've never seen any of her other work. This is the only um, Mary Tyler Moore thing that I've seen. Uh, I've never seen her TV show. Um, I should really seek it out because, obviously, it's a, it's a massive um, cultural landmark. So I don't have that comparison point to know what the difference was like. 
but she is so great here. And now knowing that she had that loss as well in her own personal life, I just, it must've been really hard because yeah, her character here is so cold and in a lot of ways, but it works to show that people grieve in different ways and they also perceive others emotions in different ways as well and which has been an interesting thing there was an article which came out the other day about i think somebody posted on twitter this comment about how they didn't realize that not everybody has an internal monologue running in their head all the time Mm, like there are people who Mm -hmm. yeah and which is a fascinating thing because you know i have like every single minute i have this voice in my head that is narrating things as it goes along so Mm -hmm you assume that everybody else is like that. And in a lot of ways, that's what that garage scene is about. That realization from Donald Sutherland's Calvin that, you know, the, that his wife is not the person that she, that he thought she was, that Uh he thought that she would be a caring and empathetic person and understanding of, other people's pain and the difficulties that they're going through. And she is going through her own pain and difficulties, but that excludes the ability for her to accept and understand her son's pain or her husband's Mm -hmm. pain or anybody else's pain. And she just wants to move on. And that's a hard thing. Like it's a hard thing to, to present um, as a relatable moment. It's a hard thing to be like, I can understand both of these characters completely. Mm-hmm. And that's what I find interesting about a film like this is that it's kind of like marriage story in a way where I, I love marriage story Except a lot. It's good. And I know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. Marriage story is fine. <laughs> I saw you what three star rating on, on yeah. Letterbox. That's yeah. good enough. Yeah. It's good. Um, but I, I like, I like marriage story a lot and I like ordinary people a lot because there's no heroes or villains. They're just people going through something pretty shit that everybody goes through in their lives at some point. And maybe not to the extent of what's in here. And that's the thing that I like as well is that the tragedy that is in this particular story is not a, it's not a, and I don't, and I say this cautiously, I don't mean to belittle this tragedy, but it's not a nine 11 style tragedy. Right. You know, uh, and that fits a, with the movie, right? It is a personal tragedy that no one yeah. else really sees. Yeah, but it's a tragedy that could happen to anybody at any time. You know, anyone it's a with a boat. Accident. It's true. Yeah, or yeah. like you know, <laughs> it's well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, middle class people with boats. There's a lot of them out there, apparently. Um, <laughs> stay, you know, sail safe, middle class people. Uh, all those listeners out there. <laughs> um, but it's just, you know, I just. I don't know, like, I, I, I compare this film to something like Kramer versus Kramer, where it's so obvious that the dad's the hero in the film, in yeah. that film, and the mum's the villain. And I hate that in a lot of ways, because mm-hmm. that's not what real life is like. We've got to see both sides of the story, and that's what Robert Redford does here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what you bring up about uh, Mary Tyler Moore's character and her, like, dealing with her own pain and not able to deal with others. I think it creates a lot of interesting moments because we all, especially if we're not getting help and like people like not to be like super serious, but if like something terrible is happening in your life, please get help from a professional because it's really hard. Grief is really difficult. Um, We all deal with grief in very difficult ways. And it appears in this movie, her way to deal with it is to tamp everything down and control everything. Even Right after it happened with the funeral, there's the whole scene in the garage where he's talking about, like, why did you care about what I was wearing? Yeah. Our son is dead. And then, and for her, at least how I read it, it's like, this is the only way I can control my emotions. This is if I control everything else. And that's how she's chosen to process this, you know? So when she sees her husband getting weepy or her son embarrassingly going to therapy, of course, again, you know, there's a certain amount of stigma when it comes to therapy now, but in 1980, fucking unheard of. Like, you well, just, I mean, and yeah, you certainly they, don't fucking talk about it. You don't go to a party yeah. and say like, oh yeah, our son is doing this and this. So she sees that and like, it's the ultimate, it's the ultimate thing she cannot control. Mm. And like, she's forced to, and it's another way that she's forced to deal with the fact that her favorite son is dead 
and never coming back. Uh, yeah. Like, so for everyone to keep talking about it is horrifying to her. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, we all know people or are people that are like that, where we're just like, I just know I'm not going to focus on this. I'm going to move on with my life. I'm going to do what I have to do. I'm going to go play golf. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then she's reminded by everyone else around her that like, no, no, there is a giant gaping hole in our home and we have to deal with it. And that's like mm. the worst thing to say to her. And, but that's what I love as well is that scene where they're having dinner and they haven't ordered yet. And already the conversation is like, you know, Hey, I need you to go to therapy. And she's like, why would I go and see somebody who doesn't know us? Well, like, I can't remember the exact line, but it's right. basically like, he doesn't know us. And what am I going to go to some stranger and tell, you know, our life story to some stranger? Why would I do that? Right. And that perspective is not, a. It, to me, it doesn't come across as like a, an anti-therapy perspective, but more of a, a problem, a family problem or issue is a personal family problem issue mm-hmm. that, a, that a family as a whole needs to deal with themselves. Right. And, it, and that is, uh, you know, it's, it's so prevalent in society and it, it's something like I'm trying to get my parents to go to therapy right now. And it's like the fucking pushback is like, Oh yeah. No, why would I need to do that? I'm like, well, you know, <laughs> you've had a few problems in your life. Like maybe you should right. go to speak to somebody who, again, as you were saying, like people who have trauma or tragedy or just regular people even, like it's good to be able to go to somebody and talk about what's going on in your life. Mm-hmm. It's good to be able to go, these are the problems that are in my life. Can you possibly help me put them together? Right. And there's no shame in that at all. Like it needs to be embraced. And and that's why I love about this film is that it's a film that embraces that it embraces the need to talk about grief that, that, you know, for so long, like the, you know, death became a taboo to talk about. Like as soon as somebody died, you didn't mention them anymore. Hmm. You didn't talk about how you felt about them gone. Or I mean, I'd argue like that. that it's in some places, especially in the United States, it still is. Like yeah. I just, I just went through a loss in the last year. I lost my dad and nobody, it's like, it's still uncomfortable for people to talk about, you know, like we just don't talk yeah. about grief. We don't talk about what happens after death, like physically, like we don't ever talk about it. And, and that's with someone who died of natural causes. This is not a fucking boating accident. This is not an accidental gunshot wound. Like this is, you know, a man who lived into his seventies and, you know, it's very sad and still is like, I'm still like dramatically impacted by it but like i've talked to like my family about it and we are all like still kind of in shock about how how little we knew about the Mm. process of death and and the emotional process of it like we were all and i'm you know someone who went to grad school for psychology and still emotionally i was not prepared for it you know and the fact that we don't talk about it therapy death all these things is like really it's having an impact and like our culture at large is maybe the worst in human history at talking about death, which is oh crazy. Yeah, definitely <laughs> yeah crazy but yeah yeah and and that's it it's like you know not to get too personal but it's like I've been my grandfather is ninety something years age now and you know he's coming up to the point where he's no longer going to be around and so I've been trying to prepare my family for right. that discussion and for the realization and. Fortunately enough, they're now getting to a point where that is becoming a reality. But it's like for the most time, it's like, no, no, he's going to be fine. And, you know, we're not all Kirk Douglas living to 103. Like that's a great innings for sure. If you want to live to 103, that is. Um, I mean, as long as you don't like rape 15 year old girls, then yeah, that'd be great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As long as you don't do that. But it's like, you know, I just we still have the more immortality perspective of life that no, no, they're going to be fine, going to live forever. And it's like, no, no, you're not. Yeah. Anything, literally anything can happen. Right. Like, you know, you could die in your sleep. and Life is all fucking that fragile, man. It doesn't it is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and that's what I love about this film is it encourages that kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think that Robert Redford came to this story for. Like he is such a humanist director in a lot of ways and – you know, you look at quiz show as well and mm-hmm. a river runs through it too. They're all very 
stories about human people and and well, even I mean, even like even though if I don't don't like it, the, didn't he do the Legend of Bagger Vance? Like that's still a very human story. Like he is very he is very focused on the human experience and the kind of fragility of ourselves, you know, and how painful life can be. Which is again, like we talked about this uh, with Newman, not what I would expect from Robert Redford. Like, yeah, there's this there's this great old story about Robert Redford that like I can't remember what part he was up for. He's like I really want this part and. The director talked to him. He's kind of like, well, there's some things you need to understand if you're going to take this part. Like this type of guy that like, you know, would go up to a girl in a bar and, you know, proposition her and she would say no. And Redford had no idea what this guy was talking about because he's just like so fucking attractive and so charming. So for him to like buckle down and go deep like this in his first Mm. movie is really impressive. And I'm. I'm very happy with the, you know, of course I'd seen this before, had never seen Rachel Rachel. Very impressed with like the first two choices that we just kind of ended up with because it ended up in a theme. Like, I didn't love Rachel Rachel as much as you did, but it's a really good movie and Ordinary People is a classic. So we started, I don't know, we might have started too hot. Like this is... (laughs) I mean, I've watched, I've watched some of the ones that got coming up and I'm like... Uh, I mean, the two Jakes, like. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we both love these movies uh, and we're just about to wrap up here. But I think obviously we both highly recommend both of these and Ordinary People especially. It's like, I don't know. It's kind of a, it's kind of, if you're a movie fan, like this is a must watch. Like this is something you, but this is, this I, goes I, on the list. Yeah. And I want to, I want to stress as well, because I think like the, I know that with like the Oscars and stuff like that, the, that people tend to go, I can't believe, you know, this one over that in a lot of ways. And unfortunately for the longest period of time, the narrative around ordinary people Mm. has been tied to the fact that it beat raging bull for best picture. And a lot of people are, how could it be? They're both classics. I mean, that's an embarrassment of riches. Cause to me, like, uh, you know, we covered Scorsese, uh, already, Mm. uh, raging bull, might be like if I have to choose the best movie of the 1980s, it might be Raging Bull. Uh, but this is right there. Like it. See, you know, I don't. I don't like Raging Bull. To be yeah, honest, because you're, you're like Donald Sutherland. You're fucking soft. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. No, it's. I it's, just, it's, I just it's, don't it's, like spending time with a character yeah, like that. It's yeah. an easy movie to hate. Absolutely. Yeah. Like I totally understand people that don't like it. I think it's like legitimately a work of art. I think it's incredible. Like a lot of what Scorsese has done. Yeah. But, but like. But, but this is not like, you know, Citizen Kane losing where you're like, what the fuck were you thinking? Like, this is a great movie. And it's. Yeah, is. exactly. And I, and, and I want to stress that I want I want if people have that mentality, they're mm. going, oh, but that's if you go into this film looking to find flaws in it for the reason why it shouldn't have beaten Raging Bull. And it's so hard to compare the two. They're so they're exactly different. They're so different. Yeah. But. You're already hobbling a great film from yes. a la- like finding an entrance point to the film. So please, if you do watch this film for the first time, just step back and be like, take that perspective away from it because the film was made outside of the Oscars. You know, the a best picture is applied to a film. You know, so rarely a film is made, unless you're Green Book, you know, so rarely a film is made specifically for the case of winning an Oscar. And I don't think that Ordinary People was a film that was like, we're going to fucking win the Oscars for this one. And it's so like, much less true then than it is now. I think there is a much yes. bigger machine behind things now than there was in oh, the yeah. late 70s, early 80s. So, you know, for better or worse, like, you know, some people are happy with it. Some people aren't. But, yeah, I totally agree uh, that yeah. this was not a movie that was, like, designed to win awards. It's just really fucking good. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's it for this episode. On our next episode, uh, we are going to take a look at a pair of movies from a romantic couple at one point in Hollywood. Like one of the, you know, most known romantic couples in Hollywood, Angelica Houston and Jack Nicholson. So we'll look at Angelica Houston's first movie, which is Bastard Out of Carolina, uh, and Jack Nicholson's first movie, which is The Two Jakes. And I'm sure they'll both be award winning as well. It'll be great. We'll, we'll talk about that soon. Um, but uh, until then, uh, you can find – actually, before I say that, where can people find you online? Uh, and uh, more importantly, where they can find my writing for your site. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah thecurb.com.au. Uh, head over there to read uh, Dave's writing and my writing and other people's writing um, and stuff like that. I wouldn't recommend following me on Twitter. 
but uh, you it's, can follow me on Facebook because it's not me yeah, it's really pretty posting exhausting. on Facebook. It's true. Yeah, it is very exhausting. <laughs> I would mute me. I would block me. If you're really if into <laughs> like Australian politics, then follow Andrew. Yeah, you know, you know, yeah there's, exactly. There's oh, a God. lot there. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, so until our next episode, uh, feel free to follow us, uh, of course, on Twitter at DirectedByPod. Um, and uh, check out our Patreon site. Um, every month we have uh, interviews about the directors that we have, we have chosen uh, that we use in the episodes. We can get the whole thing. Any amount you want to donate, you will get access to those posts. This month, uh, I don't know if this is a treat or not, uh, but I'm going to interview Mike uh, about his favorite movie uh, uh, where an actor became a director uh, in Keeping the Faith uh, <laughs> with Edward Norton directing. So I have to watch Keeping the Faith because of Mike. So uh, great for me, I guess. So check that out. Uh, you can find us, of course, at patreon.com slash a podcast directed.